Micah 5, 8. Yeah? Um, but, <clears throat> but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one of whom will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then we've got Matthew 2. Um, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for that is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means at least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's great. Thank you. Morning. Is this working? Microphone on. Good. Ready for action. But it's popping. Okay, let's just pray, and then we'll see how the microphone goes. Father God, we thank you so much for the Advent season. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for this church community, and we pray now as we reflect on who you are and your name, that you will bless us by your spirit. You will teach us, you will inspire us, you will empower us to be your people. Amen. I'm just going to hold. Okay, great. Can you hear me okay? Excellent. That'll work. I feel less like kind of Britney Spears, but it's okay. I can cope. Um, I'm a Shakespeare fan. Anyone else a Shakespeare fan in the room? I love Shakespeare. love Shakespeare. Study Shakespeare at university, um, and one of his famous, most favorite plays of most people is Romeo and Juliet, which is pretty bleak, isn't it, um, as stories go? It was one of his early plays, actually. Um, and there's a scene in Roman Juliet which is very famous called the balcony scene. And you can go to Verona. Anyone been to Verona and seen Juliet's balcony? It's a thing, yes. Um, it's a, uh, so it, it's kind of this famous scene that I'm sure many of you are aware. And um, you have Romeo on the ground and Juliet on the balcony, and they long to be together, but they can't be together. Um, because they're from two rival factions, two rival families who are sworn enemies, one a Montague and the other a Capulet. And Juliet, in kind of musing about this problem, she says this, What's in a name? She says, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, 
unless you kind of stop and think about that, that just kind of feels like just a kind of romantic utterance about roses and names. But if you actually stop and think about what she's asking, it's a very interesting question, probably deeper than the character Juliet quite realizes. She's clearly frustrated that she can't be with the man that she loves because their names don't match. He has a family name, which is a sworn enemy of her name. So because of his family name, they can't be together. But actually, she asks a deeper question. She says, to what extent is the name of something connected to its identity? She's actually interrogating meaning. She says, if a rose wasn't called a rose, would it still be a rose? Or would it be somehow different? Now, Clearly, the answer to her question is yes and no. You could call a rose a spade, and it would still smell as sweet, but it would cease to be a rose. It would be something else. And so, yes, if it was possible in those days for Romeo to change his name from Montague to something else, could they still be together? Well, yes and no, because he would still be who he is. His parentage would be the same, regardless of his surname. Does that make sense? And what we're into is the realm of what's called semiotics. Semiotics, which is the study of meaning, about how human beings make meaning out of the world that exists around us. And the answer is that we make meaning by using shapes and sounds and words and symbols. That's how we describe when we say that's a chair. We're giving it some meaning by ascribing a word to something. And we all agree that it's a chair. And therefore, we are able to communicate with one another. But it doesn't actually affect the essence of the chair itself. But there is a connection between the name that something has and its essence. Sorry to go straight into semiotics, by the way. It'll get easier from here. Is everyone happy with that kind of basic premise that the name that we give something is intrinsically linked to its essence? So when we named our daughter Ella Joy, Joy being her middle name, we didn't know her yet. She was a baby. And yet, she is the kind of person who seems to embody joy. Now, I don't know whether that's because we named her Ella Joy, and therefore it was a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, or whether there was something about her that was already joyful, and that kind of prompted our spirits to give her that name. Does that make sense? So my name's John Mark. You might not know that about me. My middle name is Mark, John Mark. Um, and I was uh, an awkward birth, as I'm sure you can probably imagine. Um, and my parents initially named me John Mark because John Mark is uh, one of his things that he's infamous for is for kind of turning back when things got a bit scary. And um, my, my mum liked the idea that I kind of saw the mountains and ran the other way and was reluctant to be born and was born by a cesarean section, kind of untimely ripped. Um, so John Mark um, is my name. But also John Mark went on to write Mark's Gospel. And so... There's something in there, perhaps, about a gift for communicating truth. Now, is that because I was named John Mark, or is it the other way around? Now, why am I talking about this? Well, our Advent season is going to all be about the names of Jesus, the different names that we give to Jesus or that are given to Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that names are important. Names are important. And you might ask, and someone who's not a Christian or not a churchgoer, they might say, why have I got this candle with 25 different names on it? Why can't he just have a name and be done with it? It's far too complicated. Why can't it just be Jesus done? Why does there have to be all those other names that you've got on your candle there for this person? And the answer is that there is no single name in our language that is sufficient to describe his identity. Agreed? 
He's bigger. Because he was in existence before language even existed. He's pre-language, isn't he? He's pre-language. He was there at the beginning, before humans were even created, before language was even given as a gift. Jesus was. And therefore, his name is beyond the limits of our language. And when we use language to try and describe who Jesus is this Christmas, we are grasping at metaphors. We are trying to describe the nature of God himself, and our language is insufficient to do so. And so we use as many names as we can to try and describe the totality of who Jesus is. Our language is insufficient, and yet it's what we have. We were given language. You remember right at the beginning of the story, God actually gives humans the right to name the creatures. You remember that right at the beginning in Genesis? He gave us this gift of language. The world was created through language. In the beginning, God said, and he named the night and the day. So language somehow forges meaning as well as describes it. It's a mysterious thing. And obviously that's something that in John's gospel, that's what John is referring to when he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the thing that creates meaning, that creates order out of chaos. That's what language does for us. Otherwise, we just walk around in this chaotic word and we can't grasp any meaning or shape to our reality without words. Okay, so this is the point. Names matter. Words matter. When we say Jesus Christ, we are saying something about who he is. It's not just his name. It's a description of his identity, of his purpose, of his mission. Names matter. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. The name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What's being said there is that Jesus exists in a category beyond the language we have. He has a name that is above any other name that will ever be or has been. He's in his own linguistic category. His name is that powerful. It is beyond the limits of our language to describe. And so this Christmas, we mustn't seek to reduce Jesus down. We mustn't seek to reduce him down, which is what's increasingly happening, isn't it? I still, I'm, I, I respect the fact that people don't believe in the things that I believe, but I struggle with Xmas as a term because it is deleting the name. It's deleting the language that carries the meaning. It's a denial of the name. And for me, I find it offensive, but that's just where I am. So I want us this morning and over the next few weeks to embrace the multi-named nature of Jesus he is no one single thing. And let's accept as well that there is a limit to our language to describe who he is. He's too big. But we try. We try because that's what we're asked to do. His is a name above all other names. One name just won't do. He's too important. His power is too complete. His authority is too massive. His love is too deep and wide and generous for us to give him a single name and for that to do. 
So, let's have a look at one aspect of his name this morning. So, we've had that reading from uh, Matthew and from Micah, and I'd like to dwell on the Micah, if you like. Um, I, I like Micah a lot. So, if you want to turn back to Micah, page 933 in the Church Bibles... Micah's one of my favorite prophets. You might not know this, but my son Ben, his middle name is Micah, Benjamin Micah. So Micah's an important name for me. Um, it's a name that has something to do with prophecy and clarity and truth. And I do see in Ben many of those characteristics. So Micah chapter 5. What does this say about the name of Jesus and who he is? It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler, will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And I'm going to keep reading. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of what? The name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. What a magnificent prophecy. And what I want to just dwell on this morning is this idea that he will be a ruler. Okay, sometimes we find the word Lord. So I want to just dwell on this idea. What do we mean to say that Jesus is Lord? What do we actually mean by that? Why are we giving him that name? What are we suggesting about him or his character or his ministry? Now, I don't speak Hebrew. You'll be shocked to hear, or Greek. But I do have some books at home that help me with this kind of thing. So I just want to just dwell on that word for a moment in Micah about ruler. What is that? So there's a Hebrew word called moshal, which means to rule. Okay, to rule, to govern, to have power over, to reign. That's what the word means. So when it says in Micah, one who will be ruler, that's the word that's being used. The word marshal. Now, there's a few things to say. First of all, it's, it's a verb. It's a doing word. So when we say he's Lord or he is a ruler, it means he is the one who rules. The one who is ruling who is doing the oversight, doing the action of leadership, of ruling over creation. That's what it means. But you'll have to indulge my kind of nerdiness for a moment, um, and apologies if you're not interested in this kind of thing, but the word moshal also means, there's two meanings. One is to rule, and the other meaning of that Hebrew word is uh, figurative language, metaphor. It means the same thing. So it's, it's a word that could be used to describe, say, a parable, where you tell a story to illustrate a deeper truth. And the reason why that excites me is I be believe in that word. You have both the idea that Jesus is ruler, but also that the word itself is a kind of metaphor for who he really is, the true nature of his power. That when we try and describe Jesus, all we have are images. We have images of shepherds and kings. They're human concepts that are grasping at the enormity of how big he is and how powerful he is. We are using morshals, metaphors, to try and describe his morshal, his rulership. Is that okay? A little bit of a word study for you, just in case you like that kind of thing. I do. 
But the point is, he's a ruler. And that's what we're thinking about this morning. Jesus is Lord. Yes? He rules. He rules in both senses. Yeah, he rules and he rules. He is Lord. He has the moshal. He has the authority over the earth. He has the authority over our life. And I think one of the things that's difficult about the word Lord now is that our lords are rubbish. <laughs> our leaders are rubbish. Aren't we all just a bit fatigued of bad leaders? Yes? Don't you just wish that people would get together at COP and someone would just make some decisions that might save the planet? Don't you just wish that someone would just get a grip? Don't you just wish that someone would just get a grip of the economy? Don't you just wish that someone would come in and say, look, it's a really bad idea to shoot one another. We should stop bombing each other. We should distribute things more evenly. Don't you just yearn that someone would just take some responsibility in the world and just be a ruler and get it right? Don't you, don't you long for that? Oh, just, we're all tired and fed up of disappointing leaders. And the problem with that is we start to become tired and fed up with the idea of being led. We start to reject authority and say it's bad. Authority leads to me being unhappy, having less money, having less freedom. It makes me afraid. It takes away my liberties. The idea of authority is being eroded in our society because the leaders are just so bad. And they always have been. Yes? It's a problem. And so my question for you this morning is, do you want to be led? Do you want to have a leader in your life? Or does that concept bother you? Do you want to have a Lord over your life? Or does that concept bother you? And if it bothers you, can I suggest that the problem there is that we've never really seen a Lord like this. There never has been a Lord quite like this. And so our metaphors for what lordship is are broken. The language just won't do. So, what is this leader going to be like? Well, it's all there in Micah. So if you go back to Micah, let's just highlight a couple of things. So Micah 5.2 I know we read this bit about the Bethlehem bit, and that's the bit that most people take away. Oh, yeah, Bethlehem, there it is, prophecy. Oh, look, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's a fulfillment. I'm not kind of saying that's not important, it is. But there's so much more to this prophecy than just Bethlehem. Let's look at it. So, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule. For me. So the first thing to notice is that this ruler will rule on behalf of the Father. Not through his own agenda, not through the desire for power for himself, not out of corrupt motivation, not because he wants to exercise power, but because he's ruling on behalf of the Father, exercising God's authority on the earth. He will rule for me. And how much better would it be if our human rulers made some decisions on behalf of the Father rather than on behalf of themselves? Wouldn't that make the world a better place? Yes, that's what I think. <laughs> it's a challenge to leaders by the I'm in leadership in my day job, so this is a challenging passage for me. To rule on behalf of the Father for me is what it says. Number two, it says, 
one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. I love this. Because Micah's pretty old, right? That's not like a contemporary scripture. That's an ancient text. So what's it talking about? From old, from ancient times? Well, my interpretation is this. He will rule with a knowledge base that not only spans human history, but goes right back to creation and before. He has an eternal perspective on the way that he will govern. Isn't that amazing? His origins are from of old. He will rule from first principles, pre-language about what it means to be human, about empowering human beings to live their divine identity in that they're made in his image. His ruling will be based in that kind of wisdom. It's a wisdom beyond our comprehension, everybody. It is a wisdom from of old before our language even came into existence. There's a big idea for you this morning. That's the Lord that we're here to worship. What else does it say? It says his rule will reach to the ends of the earth. Don't you love that? Aren't we tired of factions, clans, tribalism, warfare? His rule will reach to the ends of the earth, will encompass all nations. Don't you just fancy a bit of that right now? His rule will reach to the ends of the earth and will be for all people, is what we're told. What else are we told? We're told that he will shepherd his flock. Beautiful metaphor. He will shepherd his flock. He will take care of. He will guide. He will protect. Isn't that a ruler that you want this morning? Not somebody who tells you exactly what to do, like a dictator, or deprives you of things, but someone who shepherds you, who cares for you, just guides you in the right direction, but still lets you roam. Isn't that a beautiful image of leadership? To shepherd. To shepherd. This is this Jesus who is here to shepherd his flock. And he will shepherd his flock, how? In the strength of the Lord... He will be strong, and here we go, in the majesty of the name, notice that, of the name of the Lord. That's where his authority comes from, in God's name. Now, I don't know about you this morning, but that's the kind of leader that I want in my life. And actually, if the leader, if the Lord is like this, then being under his governance is just a wonderful place to be. Isn't it? It's life-giving, freedom-enhancing. It's not a dictatorship. It's not someone who will take advantage of us. It's not someone who wants to use us, abuse us. It's someone who loves us, who wants to shepherd us, who has all authority and power, who wants to bring peace and fullness and justice into the world and into our lives. And so my challenge this morning, for me as well as for you, is how comfortable do you feel with the idea that Jesus is Lord? How excited do you feel about that? How challenged do you feel by that? Is there sometimes a part of us like Herod that when we find out that Jesus is Lord, that we want to kind of shut that down? Because ultimately that means giving away our own power and control, doesn't it? And it's easy to characterize Herod as a kind of pantomime villain, but his response is natural. 
This guy's going to take my power away. I don't want it. Because his concept of leadership is built in our world. Of leaders who abuse and take control. In fact, that's what he did. So that's what he thinks of when he thinks of leaders. But Jesus is so much more than that. He is so much beyond that. The kind of leadership he promises us this morning in our world, in our lives, is the shepherd. The righteous one. The one with all power and authority. Because he has a name which is above all of our other names for these things. So these were the questions I asked myself. (laughs) Are we ready? Are we willing to give over our lives to his sovereignty this morning? It's my first big question. Rhetorical, you'll be grateful to to hear. Are we ready? Are we willing to give over our lives to his sovereignty this morning? Do we yearn for his return, for his kingdom to be established this morning? Do we yearn for his rule in our world this morning? Do we yearn for it? Do we yearn for his rule? And do we recognize that until he comes, he exercises that sovereignty through us? There's the big one. (laughs) There's the big one. Do we recognize this morning? So I, you know, I love Advent. I was talking to the chaplain of my school a few days ago, and she said she finds Advent deeply unsettling, and I understand why. Because it's full of challenge, isn't it? And it's full of darkness as well as promise. And in my mind, there is one authority in heaven and earth and all of time and creation who has the power to rule over us in a way that is just and merciful and right and good and empowering and loving. And that's Jesus. Do you agree? The Lord. The Lord. The name above all other names. But just before Juliet asks what's in a name, Romeo says something interesting. He looks up at the balcony and he sees that a a lamp has been turned on and he says, it's the east. And then he says, and Juliet is the sun. Because he's so in love with her that he has to grasp at a powerful metaphor, something that tries to grab hold of what she means to him in that moment. She is the sun. She is the sun. And my hope for all of us this morning is that we're in love with this idea of Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord. Both metaphorically and literally is the Lord. The Lord of my life, the Lord of this church, the Lord of this country and this world. And do we look to the east this morning as we prepare for Christmas and say, Jesus is the Son. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Lord of all creation, the name which is above every name, which is beyond language and comprehension, we worship you this morning. And as we approach the throne of the manger this Advent season, help us to hang on to that you are Lord. You are Lord of our lives. You are Lord of this world. That you are Lord of the world that is to come. 
And so we ask you this morning to rule in us, rule in our hearts, rule in my heart, Lord. Help us not to be like Herod and try and squash you out. Holy Spirit, come and rule in our hearts. Have sovereignty over our lives. And we pray for the rulers in this earthly world, the politicians, the tech leaders, the sports stars, the influencers. We pray this morning as people gather to talk about the state of our planet and people gather to talk about how we might end wars, that there will just be a glimpse of your kind of leadership, your kind of lordship, your kind of authority, just a taste in their decision-making. We ask you by your spirit to move in those rooms where those decisions are made. We ask you to exercise your sovereignty through us as we live our daily lives. And we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.